This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, January 25th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Venezuela's socialist dictator, Nicolas Maduro, is facing heavy pressure to resign after having destroyed the economy and rigged an election for himself. His opponent, backed by the United States, is now declaring himself to be president. Today we'll be joined by Ana Quintana, the Heritage Foundation's Latin America expert, to discuss the unfolding situation. Plus, the Super Bowl is set. Rams versus Patriots. We'll have ourselves a debate over Tom Brady, the oldest NFL quarterback, and whether the Pats will redeem themselves. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. Well, it's a no-go for the Senate on reopening the government and funding the border wall, a package that included the $5.7 billion in funding President Trump has asked for for the border wall, as well as temporary legal status for some illegal immigrants, was voted on Thursday. But the vote fell short of the 60 votes it needed to pass, with only one Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, voting for it. Two Republicans, Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Tom Cotton of Arkansas, voted against the legislation. Well, as the Senate tries to break the stalemate, the House seems frozen in opposition to any wall funding. But some Republicans in the House are trying to pass a bill to pay federal workers amid the shutdown. In fact, House Republicans have voted twice on the bill, losing both times to the Democrats. Congressman Mike Johnson, who chairs the Republican Study Committee, said, quote, It is disingenuous to express outrage over the approximately 800,000 workers missing paychecks, but then continue to vote in favor of withholding their pay. That is precisely what the majority of Democrats are doing. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said in a CNBC interview Thursday that government employees should be able to get loans during the shutdown since they will eventually get back pay. Mr. Secretary, there are reports that there are some federal workers who are going to homeless shelters to get food. Well, I know they are, and I don't really quite understand why, because as I mentioned before, they, the obligations that they would undertake, say a borrowing from a bank or a credit union, are in effect federally guaranteed. So the 30 days of pay that some people will be out there's no real reason why they shouldn't be able to get a loan against it. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was quickly critical of Ross's comments. Wilbur Ross saying he doesn't understand why. When he was asked about people going into food lines and pantries and the rest, he says I, he, he doesn't understand why they have to do that. I don't know, is this the let them make cake kind of attitude or call your father for money or... Uh, this is character building for you. It's all going to end up very well, just as long as you don't get your paychecks. I don't under, quite understand why, as hundreds of thousands of men and women are about to miss a second paycheck tomorrow. Well, Nancy Pelosi withdrew her invitation Wednesday to President Trump to deliver his State of the Union address in the House chamber. Now, the president is relenting. He announced on Twitter Thursday that he would be postponing his address until after the government is reopened. He said, quote, I'm not looking for an alternative venue for the State of the Union address because there is no venue that can compete with the history, tradition, and importance of the House chamber. I look forward to giving a great State of the Union address in the near future. Actress Kate Hudson recently had a baby girl, and in an interview with AOL, she suggested that she wanted to raise her daughter genderless. 
asked, does having a baby girl make you do anything differently or change your approach at all? Hudson has two sons or had two sons previously. Hudson responded, it doesn't really change my approach, but there's definitely a difference. I think you just raise your kids individually regardless, like a genderless approach. We still don't know what she's going to identify as. I will say that right now she is incredibly feminine in her energy, her sounds, and her way. Well, a Tennessee lawmaker is looking to tighten up the dress code on public school campuses for parents. Antonio Parkinson, a Democrat from Memphis, is putting together a bill that would block parents from entering campus if they're intoxicated and if they're wearing clothes deemed inappropriate. So what provoked this? Parkinson told USA Today, quote, I was talking to my principals when I got the real story. There are parents who are showing up at schools in the office with lingerie on, end quote. Well, the reaction to his bill has been overwhelmingly positive, if it passes a full vote this summer, it could go into effect as early as 2020. Now, I'm just curious what the name of the bill will be called. What do you think, Kate? I have no idea, but... I think cover I, that the, the Cover That Up Act. I wonder what percentage of parents drop off their kids when they're wearing pajamas. Like, I wonder if that's going to be affected. Maybe. I don't know. I know there has been some concern that some parents, you know, may not have decent enough clothing, but this is really just no. about not being inappropriate. <laughs> well, maybe it's just an argument for homeschooling. Needs you can to dress be the, however uh, you want when you homeschool. The, no one wants to see that act. Let's see how that passes. All right. Next up, we're going to talk to Anna Quintana about the situation in Venezuela. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. The time for debate is done. The regime of former President Nicolas Maduro is illegitimate. His regime is morally bankrupt. It's economically incompetent. And it is profoundly corrupt. It is undemocratic to the core. I repeat, the regime of former President Nicolas Maduro is illegitimate. We therefore consider all of its declarations and and actions illegitimate and invalid. That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking Thursday at the Organization of American States. Joining us today to discuss the situation in Venezuela and the Trump administration's response to it is Anna Quintana, a senior policy analyst who focuses on Latin America at the Heritage Foundation. Anna, let's start from the beginning. How did we get to this situation where the United States thinks that Nicolas Maduro isn't the real leader of Venezuela? All right. So the quick 30 second wrap up on that. Um, I'll give you a minute. Even. A minute. <laughs> amazing. That's even better. All right. So Hugo Chavez came into power, um, was elected about 20 years ago. Right. Chavez was elected. Subsequent elections, heavy authoritarian handed, blah, 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 blah. Rewrote the Constitution, just made everything, you know, for himself. Maduro, um, Chavez dies 2013. He appoints Maduro as his handpicked successor. They have fraudulent, fraudulent elections uh, to reelect Maduro. And then Maduro was reelected again uh, last year in another series of fraudulent elections. I mean, when you have the Socialist Party essentially controlling all levers of power within the government, you cannot expect there to be free and fair elections where the opposition actually has a real chance at any sort of opportunity. I mean, it just it did not happen. So uh, in January, the United States, the, the United States and 50 other countries said that they did not accept Nicolas Maduro as a legitimate leader. And now we saw the actions of yesterday and today where the United States has now recognized 
the head of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, as the uh, interim president of Venezuela. Yeah, so tell us about him. Uh, he's leader of the National Assembly in Venezuela. Um, what's his basis for stepping in and claiming the presidency? The basis is the Venezuelan constitution. So the Venezuelan constitution, specifically Article 232, states that if the office of the presidency is vacant, that the in, in the line of succession, um, in terms of the line of succession, the head of the National Assembly um, is to be the president. And that's that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Um, I mean, over 50 countries have said that Nicolas Maduro is not president. The elections were incredibly fraudulent. They didn't have international observers. I mean, it was it's it's it was comical. It was an incredibly comical situation last year to that with the, the the process that they called an election. So there's been clips floating around on Twitter of, um, you know, huge street protests yeah. in Venezuela. Um, are these is this really happening? Does this show that there is actually going to be a change? Or I think, you know, we've seen so many times in international stuff, um, you know, the Arab Spring, et cetera, yeah. that protests don't necessarily translate into change. What do you think is going to happen? So I have been following Venezuela literally since Hugo Chavez uh, was elected. And I can promise you the the size the scope and the wide variety of actors that are now part of the opposition, that's something that's unprecedented. That's something that we've never seen before. I mean, it just it's you've just you've never seen people just take to the streets in Venezuela. I mean, you've seen you know, you've seen protests before and you've seen people kind of, you know, anti-government demonstrations. But right now, this is a situation in which the country is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. People are literally starving to death. People know that the government is willing to shoot and kill protesters because that's what they've done and that's what they're doing right now. But people do not care. They know that they have no other option. They know their children's their children have lost a generation. They know they themselves are part of a lost generation as well. And the only option they have right now is to create that internal pressure within their country to push for change. So the military has been backing the Maduro regime um, largely because they've just been bought off, essentially, uh, given assets. Do you think they'll hold out through these uh, protests or do you think there's some point at which it's in their interest to turn on Maduro? So that's the, the the part of the military that's essentially been bought off because they've been given control of the National Oil Company, which is, you know, that's where Venezuela's wealth is, right? The National Oil Company. Um, that's, that's at the upper level, right? The rest of the rank and file soldiers, particularly within the army, they are also experiencing the, the humanitarian catastrophe inside of their country, right? Their, their families are starving. Their children do not have access to education, access to medical care. Um, the problem is that the Venezuelans have had great teachers in the Cuban government in teaching them counterintelligence and like teaching them to make sure that there are no subversive actions kind of at the lower rank and file levels. Um, but what we're seeing right now with this growing international kind of uh, pressure against the government, it's essentially forcing the military to choose. Are you going to side with the dictator who his only the only actors that recognize him internationally are Russia, China, Cuba? Um, now Hezbollah. Hezbollah has now come out in support of Nicolas nice. Maduro, um, the Palestinian Authority. I mean, or, or are you going to side? All the good guys. Ex- exactly. Or are you going to side with the United States, with Canada, with 11 other countries in Latin America? The European Union is putting together a statement. I mean, it's just the it's the, the contrasts are, 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 are pretty significant. And this is, I think, forcing the military to really make a choice. Right. Who are you going to support? So let's talk about Russia and China backing Maduro. Yeah. Um, obviously, with the U.S. on the other side, do you have concerns that this could turn into a proxy fight over other issues? What exactly are Russia and China doing here with this play? 
So China is owed a significant amount of money by the Venezuelans. I mean, China is essentially the only country that continues providing the Venezuelans loans because, I mean, Venezuela is a deadbeat economy, right? They've bled the, the, the Chavistas and Maduro and his cronies have bled that economy dry. And, you know, and so the Chinese right now are interested because they're like, all right, we need Venezuela's oil wealth. The same thing with the Russians, right? You know, it's funny because you're going to hear a lot of leftists talk about the United States is only interested in Venezuela for oil. That is not even a, a remote interest in this whatsoever. But it's an interest for the chi- for China and for Russia. Like they care about the oil. They care about Venezuela's oil wealth because it's the most oil rich nation in the entire world. And so Russia and China want to be power brokers in the Venezuela crisis, right? They want to be able to have an opportunity to kind of check the United States and say, well, you know what, in exchange for you guys giving up this, this is what we're going to allow the Venezuelan government to do. And also you have to understand Who is Russia's closest allies and closest friends in the Western Hemisphere? It's Cuba and it's Venezuela. Cuba is another country that's a deadbeat economy. Venezuela at least has oil wealth, right? I mean, they lose Venezuela. They lose a significant amount of oil wealth. They can always find some other little random proxy like Nicaragua or whatever. But I mean, none of them will have the oil wealth that Venezuela has. So assume for a moment that Guaido actually becomes the the official recognized president. Maduro is you know, exiled or something. Sure. Um, like, is there a viable path forward to economic recovery and political stability? Oh, my God. Yeah. The opposition has been working on economic recovery plans, I mean, for decades. I mean, I mean folks, opposition has been working on it, the IMF, the Inter-American Development Bank, the U.S. Agency for International Development. I mean, there's just so much that's there because it's the the level of what's been broken is obviously known and it's going to take an incredibly long time. I mean, this is not going to be a 5, 10, 20 year project. This is going to be it took them 20 years to break Venezuela. It's probably going to take twice as long uh, to fix the country. Right. But the the price and the consequence of not doing so. I mean, there are 32 million lives at stake. And also we have to consider 32 million people who are going to potentially turn into refugees in neighboring countries as well. That's a lot of people. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, in, in terms of like economic recovery plans, like that's that's something that's pretty viable. You mentioned, of course, Venezuela used to be prosperous. Um, conservatives in the U.S., particularly in the last two years, have talked a lot about Venezuela's socialist turns. Um, how much of a role has socialism played in leading us up to this current crisis? So the best way to describe socialism in in the context of Venezuela is to Socialism was used as like a Trojan horse by by the Chavistas and by Hugo Chavez and his supporters to come into power. But these guys are just thugs, right? These guys are just criminals. And these guys, these guys are just, you know, these corrupt officials. And that's essentially what how all socialists are, right? I mean, they they claim that they want socialism and they claim that socialism is all about inequality and it's all about goodness. It's all about bringing equity, but that's not what it's about, right? It's all about the end result is always human misery and it's always about enriching themselves at the expense of others. I mean, every single country that has ever implemented socialist economic or even socialist social policies always winds up with corruption because it, oh, it requires a heavy-handed authoritarian and it requires a lack of checks and balances. I mean, the evidence is there. So we've seen the Trump administration over the last couple of years take a really hard line against Venezuela. How much of a break is that from the Obama years? <laughs> and, and to what extent would you credit the Trump administration for, for playing a, a role in this? I mean, it's literally, it's, 
it's like night and day, right? I mean, I remember back in 2014 when there were these huge anti-government protests and the government was literally on the streets with tanks shooting and running over student protesters. I'm telling you, there were videos of tanks running protesters over and the Obama administration did not want to implement targeted human rights-based sanctions against Venezuelan government officials. This is not even against a Venezuelan like full economy, the government. This is against certain government officials, meaning that they were not even allowed to travel to the United States. The Obama administration was perfectly fine with not moving through on that. You know, when comparison, looking at the Trump administration, in less than two years, they have sanctioned on those human rights and corruption-based sanctioned over sanctions over 100 Venezuelan officials, right, over 100. They have designated the vice president of Venezuela as a drug trafficking kingpin. I mean, that's information that the Obama administration had. They did not act on. That was Secretary Mnuchin's first act in office. I mean, they have done a lot. And they've also rallied a region that has been really reluctant to be forward-leaning on Venezuela, which is, I mean, they never did that for Cuba. Right. I mean, the, the United States and Latin America never had the capacity or the political will to do that for Cuba. And the Castro regime has been in power for over 60 years. So I think it just says a lot that within the last two years, you have an administration that's criticized for not caring about human rights. It's not criticized. That's criticized for not caring about partnerships or, you know, our regional allies or cared or caring about the Western Hemisphere when it's actually the polar opposite. All right. Well, Anna, thanks so much for uh, coming and explaining. We'll see how things go in Venezuela. All right. Thanks, guys. Next up, we bring in Daily Signal football experts. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for the agenda on heritage.org today. Okay, well, as you folks know, I am not a sports person, but with this thing called the Super Bowl coming up, I did want to talk about the team called the Patriots, Overtime Rules, and Chick-fil-A. All of this was told to me to discuss by Lauren Evans, who is one of the people joining us today. Um, she is a producer at the Heritage Foundation, and we have Heritage's John Cooper, a media relations guru. So, Lauren and John, the first question I want to ask you about is, I understand the Patriots are back in the Super Bowl. I thought all good Americans hated the Patriots and didn't want them to be in the Super Bowl every time. Thoughts? You are correct. All good Americans <laughs> hate the Patriots. John? I mean, if you boil it down that simple, then sure, there's going to be some hate blockers going up for the people who don't like good football. But, you know, it's it's like James Franco said, they hate us because they ain't us. And it's kind of the worst case scenario because it's America's least liked team. And then no real football fans like that the Rams went to L.A. So the fact that they went their first year after moving to L.A., it's just it's not a great Super Bowl. Okay, but seriously, John, I understand you're a Patriots fan, but I mean, they've been in like... A Patriots like, fan who's from South Carolina. Which is Technically problematic. Virginia. Get it right, Virginia. Davis. Still so, the South. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but I mean, the Patriots are in the Super Bowl, it seems like, every year. They keep winning. What's... I mean, come on, we root for the underdog. It's like the Yankees, man. Hey, at the end, at the end of the day... Like Tom Brady said before the, the AFC Championship game, everybody thinks that they're the underdog because everyone was saying the Chiefs, that high-powered Patrick Mahomes offense is going to knock them out. Phillip Rivers, even in the divisional game, can go into Foxborough and beat the Patriots. None of that's happened. Brady's come through. They've actually been the underdog this year, and they've proven over and over again they're still the team to beat, and the road to the Super Bowl goes through Foxborough. Just can't argue with that. 
He's been uh, Brady's been a starter for 17 seasons. He's been to the Super Bowl eight times with a ninth one coming up. And, of course, he's won five of those Super Bowls. And I think he's slightly favored to win this one as well. So can't yeah. argue with that. I do appreciate the fact that someone who's been a quarterback since I was in second grade is still a quarterback. It's pretty impressive. He was the 199th pick in the NFL draft. Sixth round. So he's really shown, like, he's not only a great quarterback, but you have a great system with Bill Belichick. Year in, year out, guys like Josh McDaniels running the offense. But Brady has shown over and over again, not only is he great, not only is he in a great system, but he elevates the play of those people around him. Julian Edelman on any other team, eh, he's so-so. Okay, but isn't Brady, I mean, from my very limited understanding, he has this extremely restrictive diet that's like vegan, no peppers or other nightshades. They have a private chef in their home. Like, he seems very intense in a weird way. That's what all great athletes are at the end of the day. The ones that really ex- uh, you know, excel and succeed at the highest levels, they really devote their lives to being able to achieve that that level of success. Uh, yeah, his diet is definitely something I could not stick to, uh, no matter how many Super Bowls were involved. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's what he wants to do, and it's worked out for him, so you can't argue with that. And Cooper mentioned it. He is old. Like, for the <laughs> NFL, he is so old. He's the oldest non-punter or kicker in the whole NFL. He is seven years older than the second oldest person on the Patriots. Jared Goff, he's the quarterback for the L.A. Rams. Kind of like Daniel, he was in the first grade when Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl. Not even when Tom Brady wow, was drafted. Daniel, you should have gone somewhere so. different in life. <laughs> well, to even yeah. top that, the coach of the Rams, Sean McVay, is 32. Wow. Tom Brady is 41. He's nine years older than the coach of the team he'll be facing off against in the Super Bowl. So crazy. all of this helps me to respect the Patriots, but I don't Ooh. understand how someone who's not from Boston or New England Glad we're can like legitimately be a Pats fan without just being a bandwagon. Hey, at the end of the day, all I can say is loving bandwagon. watching football yeah. all my life. Started watching Tom Brady. I was like, I like that guy. And over over time, as the years go by, it's you fall in love with the player more. And as, so, as a result, you start rooting for the so Patriots. if he retires, are you going to stop being a Pats fan? Not at all. I'll keep rooting for him. If they start losing real bad, having losing seasons, will you start, you know... If your hometown gets an NFL team. Well, at this rate, Brady's going to play till he's 60 and, you know, they'll never stop losing. So I don't even think that's a valid question. But at the end of the day, you know, always, always have a soft spot 20 in my heart years for from now. Oh, my gosh. OK, one other thing I wanted to bring up. You guys are going to have to provide the context because I don't understand this. But I understand most of America who follows football is really upset over something that happened regarding overtime this weekend. Can you guys share your thoughts? So. In college football, when it goes into overtime, both teams get a shot of making either a field goal or a touchdown. In the NFL, you do a coin toss, and the first person to score wins. So if you win the coin toss, you're much more likely to actually win the game. And that's actually what happened in both the NFC and the AFC Championship this weekend. And it just kind of stinks, because you're leaving the game to a coin toss. And it went four quarters and was a tie. I mean, they they decide who gets the ball first, and you know who you know is going to lead off the set the momentum and set the tempo for the the game itself with the coin toss. I don't have a problem with deciding the overtime based on that as well, because if you're truly good enough to let's say you lose the coin toss, if you're truly good enough and deserve to beat the other team, then you will stop them when they have the ball and are driving on the field against you. Kansas City, in this instance, couldn't do that because Brady was just on fire. I think he was 2-0 and in playoff overtimes before Sunday and, of course, is now 3-0. and So he's got a track record of just, like, once it gets to overtime and the board's kind of reset, he just mows you down. The Chiefs, you know, didn't have a good defense all year. I think they were the 31st-ranked scoring defense all year. 
They proved that they could not stop him. So, yeah, I think there's some like sour grapes among the anti-Patriots crowd because, oh, you know, Brady got the won the coin toss. But um, if Kansas City had won, that Patriots defense really showed in the fourth quarter. They were kind of falling apart and Holmes was kind of getting into a rhythm and was able to kind of pick them apart with Damian Williams underneath. So they very well could have won. And I don't think we'd be having this conversation. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a good it's a good rule. It provides for a lot of drama. Uh, because you really want to see who wins that coin toss, but then also, can that team drive the entire length of the field? Can they score a touchdown? Because they have to score a touchdown. You know, that's the other thing well, here. No, you can win on a field goal. You can win on a field goal, but only after your first possession. So if if the Patriots had gone down and kicked a field goal on the opening possession, the game, the overtime period would have kept going, and then Kansas City would have a chance to either score a touchdown or kick another field goal to tie it, send it to another overtime period. Basically, each team gets one shot to score a touchdown on their their first possession. And if they don't, then the next score wins. So, you know, play defense. If you play defense, you, you're alive. But the most exciting football game, college or professional, was the Texas A&M-LSU game that went seven overtime. <laughs> that that was, was awesome. And that's what the fans deserve. So when we have these, these How games. How late did that go? Uh, it, was, like, it, was, it was a long one. It was past midnight. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But, that yeah. sounds horrible. It reminds me of the 21 innings uh, baseball game. That also sounds horrible. <laughs> well, and it's it's different too. The the format's different because in college, each team, like uh, Lauren said, you you each get a shot regardless of what the other team does. You start out at your opponent's thirty five yard line, so the the field is already artificially shortened. And let's say the first team that gets the ball, if they kick a field goal, that you know changes the calculus for the other team a little bit because okay, now they know okay, I either have to tie the game or I have a chance to win the game. Or if if they didn't score at all, then they have a chance to win outright, even if they just kick a field goal. So if you were to implement the college rule into the NFL, you'd, I think you'd be taking a ton of the drama out of the process because NFL teams are so good that if you start them out at the 35-yard line from the get-go, yeah. you're taking out a lot of the drama. The well, you could start them out plays. at the 20-yard line. Yeah, well, I mean, that'd be even worse because you're, you're shorting the field closer. even more. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so I think having them basically have another quarter of, of action uh, pretty close to it is is really the best. Why not start them off on the other team's, like, 30-yard line and give them four downs to score. Well, that's basically... Well, the four downs inter- is, idea is interesting, but even then, you're you're kind of going the other direction and right. basically turning it into, like, Hail Mary or bust kind of right. situation, well, which makes it kickoff. interesting. Just allow them a kickoff instead of putting them on a certain yard line like they would on any other possession. Well, they already do that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you win the coin toss, you know, you like to receive. You know, every every team elects to receive it in overtime because uh, they want to score first and end the game. But, you know, you get the kickoff and then you run your offense from there. But I think, you know, there is a certain element of like, it's kind of a bummer when the other team doesn't get a go at it. But then the unsympathetic part of me because I'm a terrible person is basically like, well, you should have stopped them on defense. So. Um, okay, well, yep, on that admission, <laughs> let's slightly switch the topic. I've come, I've, I've come full circle. Uh, I want to discuss food, which Tom Brady won't eat. Lauren, you said the stadium has amazing prices. And I'm also wondering, do either of you have, Kelsey Harkness suggested I ask this question, um, favorite Super Bowl foods you like to eat? So uh, last year, UCF, my my favorite college football team, talked about it on the podcast National before. champions last year. Yeah, last year's now. It was actually the national championship game for them. Uh, was played at the Mercedes-Benz uh, Superdome. And um, they do something called fan, fan first pricing. And they do $5 Bud Lights. They do $2 hot dogs. And the idea is that people have already spent so much money to make it into the game that they deserve to have 
food that they can afford. You can bring a couple of your kids and it doesn't break the bank to feed them. And I always thought that was really cool. And they're keeping that for the Super Bowl. So if somebody's going, they can afford get a beer and a hot dog and it's less than 10 bucks. And the billionaire owner of the stadium has actually said it's worked out really well for them. They're making just as much money because they're selling more food than they would before. It's really genius. They actually, the, the Superdome has the cheapest concessions of any uh, pro franchise across, you know, all the sports. They have the cheapest concessions of any of any uh, venue across all the sports. So it's really worked out pretty well for them. And of course, you have Chick Fil A there as well, which unfortunately won't be open on wow. Sunday. But um, question is, how do you get in there without a ticket and buy all the cheap food? That's a good question. <laughs> you have to be that guy who like parachutes in at the beginning. Well, it's a dome stadium, so that might <laughs> oh, be tricky. Oh, well, there you go. That's not possible. <laughs> Wait, you guys both ignored. Do either of you have a snack that you make for the Super Bowl every year? Oh, that's a good call. I do. I make bomb buffalo chicken dip. Ooh. Okay. Cream cheese, canned chicken, hot sauce, cheddar cheese. You mix it up. You put it in the oven for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So simple. So delicious. Canned chicken? Canned chicken. You think I'm crazy? You could boil your own. You could shred it. <laughs> I don't know why it I'm would acting take- like I don't know. <laughs> oh, you use canned chicken? Actually, yeah. Given the amount of microwave meals I eat, uh, <laughs> shut up. I might be bringing guac to your party. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you got to have chips and salsa. If you don't have chips and salsa at your Super Bowl party, you're doing it wrong. Really close second, you have to have pizza of some kind. It doesn't have to be pizza. like the main thing, <laughs> but you got to have some pizza there as an option for sure. I, see, I like things that you can eat a little bit of for four hours. Like pizza is too much of a commitment to sit down and eat. Like you'd almost have to cut it into little bites. Well, I, she also uses canned chicken, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, thank you, John and Lauren. Hopefully, So you many two controversial are, topics to talk about. Hopefully you two are both still able to work together after this. The canned chicken incident. Don't let her hit me in the back of the head on the way out or anything like that. And that's going to do it for us today. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. Unless it's on football, we don't care. Rob and Jenny will be with you on Monday. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.